Welcome to episode 14 of Perspectives Unsettled, a podcast that exists to challenge our assumptions about faith and move the average Christian from status quo into boldness in action. I'm your host, Emily Luttrell. And I'm Ben Stewart. And with us today, we're excited to have a special guest, Scott Todd. Hey, everybody. Hey, Scott. Thanks for joining us, man. It's good to be with you guys. So on this episode, we're going to be talking about working with vulnerable children internationally, including some orphan care programs and ministries. And we're just going to go ahead and jump right in. Sounds great. I'm someone who spends a lot of time reading about international missions and what people think of it. And what I see as the most prominent critique, complaint, or concern with the whole field is this. Faith-based organizations get involved in children's welfare programs, get in way over their head, and then go on to cause a lot of harm to local communities and individual children. This criticism comes from inside and outside the church, and includes accusations of enabling white saviorism, exploiting children for fundraising, and wasting resources creating volunteerism experiences for privileged people. But it also includes accusations of complicity in human trafficking and orphan tourism, providing abusers with access to vulnerable children, and actively harming children by taking them from their communities and putting them in an unstable environment with a revolving door of volunteers. And what I've seen as the response to criticism like this is that most people either dismiss the criticism or they dismiss the idea that this kind of work is possible to do really well at all. These critiques are based in reality and often come from people with a great sense of compassion and justice. All of this stuff has happened and is happening by people with both bad and good intentions. But there has to be a way for us to accept that and to still work to find healthy and sustainable ways to empower vulnerable children. This is something that Uncharted needs to and wants to address, not just in a general missions-y kind of way, but as an organization that has had orphan care and sponsorship programs in Myanmar, and as an organization that is currently actively working with children in Central Asia. So what do we do? How can someone engage in ministries for at-risk children in ethical, helpful ways? What are the mistakes that have been made? And how do we look past our own good intentions to make sure we're actually doing good work? So for this episode, we're excited to welcome an expert in their field, Scott Todd. Scott is the president of One Child, which is an organization that serves and develops children in poverty around the world and helps those children reach their God-given potential. So Ben, would you like to kind of give some relational context for how you know Scott and introduce him a little? For sure. Yeah, it is exciting to have you uh, with us on this episode, Scott. And it has been um, truly a privilege just to get to know you uh, as, a, as a person and as a growing friendship. Um, I really counted a blessing when we met, quote unquote, randomly uh, at a conference that we were both attending and participating in, um, immediately connecting over our, our love and care for people in Myanmar. But then even beyond that, just love and care for people who are marginalized and on the outskirts. And specifically what I love about one of the things I love about one child is um, I think your tagline is hope in hard places. And, and so there's that even on an organizational level, that affinity in, in our focus uh, in our mission to not only love people who are marginalized, but 
to find the people who are in those places that are most overlooked and unreached and difficult to work in. Maybe also where there's just not a lot of kingdom work happening to begin with. Um, so it's just been a, it's been a real joy to get to know you as a friend, a real joy to, uh, you know, every time we get together, we're talking about what mutual kingdom mischief can we cause together. And, uh, that's been a lot of fun. And, um, you and I have chatted a little bit about our history and our journey at Uncharted in this particular realm and conversation of helping children at risk, um, ways to do that in a healthy manner. And so when we were taking on this, uh, this podcast as, or this topic through the podcast, uh, right away knew that we would love to have your voice contributing to this conversation. Um, so thank you again for being here. Maybe it'd be great, uh, just for the listener to hear a little bit more about, uh, your president of one child. Um, you've been in that role for a couple of years. You've got history with other organizations that are similar. And, and then, uh, so maybe just share a little bit about your background and experience and we'll just kind of go from there. Great. Uh, thank you, Ben. It's a delight to be with you guys. And uh, as you know, um, this is a topic that's really dear to my heart. And uh, uh, I think we all can agree that um, children are gifts from God. They are, are beautiful and deserve a better world. Um, they, they deserve a place where they are safe and where they can grow knowing that they're loved and protected and have opportunities to thrive. And so I think for sure, as we talk about hard parts of uh, this topic, we want to just remember first and foremost, our desire is that kids would know um, really who they are as gifts from God, mm -hmm. that God designed them. He has a plan for their life. He loves them and that they have a, um, you know, a unique imprint, I guess, as, as image bearers, as mm -hmm. we all are. So, so even though there've been a lot of mistakes, a lot of challenges, as we heard in the introduction from Emily, um, we can all share that common goal that kids would thrive and, yeah. and know love and, uh, and know life. And um, yeah, and it's been great getting to know you, Ben, and Uncharted and the awesome work you guys are doing. I love meeting people whose faith is courageous. I love organizations who, who work uh, courageously and in that space of faith with a boldness, um, not to be naive, not to be uh, foolish, but obviously the wisdom needed, that wisest serpents, innocent as doves kind of wisdom for how do we uh, advance good and um, you mentioned kingdom earlier, those things in a culturally relevant way and a developmentally appropriate way, um, and certainly reaching kids and having generational impact has got to be part of that. So yeah, yeah my background, I'm, my background's in medicine, actually. So I'm an immunologist and I came out of, uh, out of uh, uh, some years in oncology and immunology. <laughs> and um, honestly, uh, a, a story for another time, but felt clearly called by God to set that down and serve kids in poverty around the world. <laughs> And so that was about 20 years ago. I've been serving kids at risk for uh, almost two decades now. Uh, for 13 of those years, it was uh, with Compassion International. I was a senior vice president there and was responsible for a lot of the special programs, including uh, highly vulnerable children and um, some of these questions around how do we care for orphans. Mm. And, uh, and then came to one child and in that, um, in that transition, really uh, learning now how to develop um, highly contextualized solutions mm -hmm. uh, that strengthen existing care settings, meaning um, honestly, it's going upstream of when a kid can wind up in that highly vulnerable state, stabilize their care setting. Mm -hmm. um, just because somebody may have lost a primary caregiver or a mother or father, being a biological orphan doesn't necessarily mean that they are at high risk. Mm -hmm. Every kid's got risk, but 
maybe it's grandma, maybe it's an auntie. A lot of times extended family um, can stand in the gap and, and care for those kids. And that that's culturally what they would do and want to do anyway. So we're really learning how do we, um, how do we support those kids in the context of existing loving relationships rather than create um, programmatic designs that may even incentivize locals to displace kids from their um, extended family structures. So I know we'll get into that, but yeah, my background, uh, I've been serving kids at risk for about 20 years now. That's awesome. So even from that little tidbit, um, you know, super clear why it's important to have your voice in this conversation. And before we do jump in a lot further, I know you mentioned this briefly in the introduction, Emily, but why this episode? Like why, why Uncharted? Uh, why take on this topic? Why is it important for us to converse about this? Yeah, and I, I think part of it definitely is the fact that we do we do work with children in our international communities, and it's really important that we do it well and do it the best that we can. Um, but I think you know, in a broader sense, you know, Scott, you mentioned something about a courageous faith and having a brave faith and going boldly is um, a huge part of Uncharted's identity and something we value and find really important. And to me, part of having a courageous faith is not looking away from difficult conversations Mm -hmm. and being very frank about the the history of the church, history of, of missions organizations or personal history in terms of where good intentions have led to bad results in a lot of ways, being, being willing to examine our motivations Mm. and to talk about, or to, to not be afraid of, of difficult things of, of learning how hard something is actually to do well. And so I just think, you know, for the, for the next few episodes and the couple of podcast episodes we've have done this year, we're kind of taking more of a firm stance on like, okay, well let's get into the nitty gritty. You know, we're not, we're not afraid of how hard this will be. And we're not afraid of, you know, being wrong about some stuff. Mm -hmm. And so it's just, to me, it's part of the whole idea of having a brave faith. Yep. That's good. Okay. So on that note, with a, a smidge of courage and a whole heap of humility, uh, let's, let's engage in this conversation. And, um, maybe the first question that we'll throw out there uh, we'll look to you sort of for our first response on this, Scott, is, um, you know, we have a lot of ideas. People have a lot of ideas of what children's uh, missions related around children, work with children, orphan care, uh, working with kids at risk can look like. Maybe you can just, just give us a brief overview or even just summary of where where have we been in recent sort of missional history, if you will, um, before we take on where we are today. Yeah. So... Caring for orphans goes back um, millennia, right? I mean, you can see the reference of that in scripture of the importance of caring for orphans. More recently, um, I think perhaps emerging from worldviews that were highly dualistic, which separated physical well-being from spiritual, social, or you know, socio-emotional um, aspects of whole well-being, and in response to conflicts. So war, take the Korean uh, War, for example, um, it, or any other conflict, puts so much um, uh, stress on society when when parents are dying and, and it's at that scale where there's not the ability to absorb all those kids. And so the response is, how do we care for these kids? And that's what led to orphanages as a model. And in the context of thinking of really mostly about physical creatures, you know, they need shelter, they need food. 
And so the, uh, the emphasis was on how do you not let these kids die in the streets? They, um, they need care. And the efficiency, really, of putting them into institutional care or an orphanage-type model made sense um, at that time and under those circumstances. And let's be clear that if you were faced with, you know, near social collapse, post-conflict situation, kids are dying in the streets and you just need to get them basic needs met, this is probably the right response. Mm. You, at that point in time, don't have a lot of um, capability, capacity, volunteerism, resources, whatever else is needed to introduce to those kids long-term loving, stable relationships that help them thrive psychologically and socially and in every other way for good positive child development. So as we look back, as and I totally embrace the idea that to live boldly and live courageous faith, we have to live it with hard questions like mm -hmm. what's not good about the current orphan mm -hmm. care um, models. We also, to avoid the polarization, the kind of camps that can form between those who are going to defend the status quo and those who want to create change. There's a wisdom in acknowledging that, yeah, the past has had mistakes and there are things here which deserve critique, but there's also things that deserve honor. Yeah. And so I look back and say, hey, there are believers who out of their good intentions and with the best they could at the time, they said, let's not let these kids die. Let's do something. Yeah. And that led to some of those institutional care models. Now, as time progressed and society stabilized and economic resources are there, self-interest for those organizations kicked in and generational stuff takes obviously a long time. So, you know, 20 years down the road, do you still need that model of care? Or what have you learned that's showing you how that model of care is actually not good for kids? Mm -hmm. And that's what's happened really over the last, I would say, honestly, 50 years. It's been a long time forming where it's been recognized that institutions are not good for kids, that that doesn't promote their um, whole well-being. There's all kinds of challenges with mental illness and attachment disorders mm -hmm. and um, poor uh, locus of control or self-discipline issues, educational attainment, um, antisocial behavior that kids who go through. It's not to say there, are, of course, are positive stories as well. There's stories of kids who grew up in orphanages with very positive outcomes. Mm -hmm. But in general, uh, research shows that uh, institutional care models are not best for kids. So um, looking back at the history, let's honor those who did their best. Yeah. And then let's say, let's have that courageous faith to say, but this model of care is definitely not ideal. And so how can we do this better? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what a great posture to take to not ignore the good that was done and also the, the heart that was behind it. So I appreciate you just from the outset. Um, beginning this conversation with that, with that heart and with that mindset, you started to answer this question already a little bit, but where would you say we are today then? If that's just a brief history, how would you describe where we are today? Uh, what are some broad terms that you would use? You talked about already, you referenced there in the last 50 years or so, there seems to be uh, an awakening to, okay, at least the question of, is this actually the best way to do that? So that might already be one descriptor of where we are today, but what are some other descriptors or phrases that you would use to paint the picture for where we are today when it comes to caring for children at risk? Yeah, I'd say a couple of things. Number one, deinstitutionalize. That is definitely a trend. Um, those that are working closely in the space are committed to deinstitutionalizing care for at-risk kids meaning 
get them out of environments where the number of kids uh, greatly exceeds what a natural family unit would be, where um, the issues of mixing gender, not mixing gender, the issues of um, caregiver rotation, like are the caregivers paid people who come and go a lot because you have high turnover rates and that creates disruption and in bonding and sense of belonging, all those kinds of things that go with institutional care. It needs to end. And so that's number one. Number two, um, what goes with that has to go with that is, okay, what are the alternative models? And in that space, I would say home-based care. Um, home-based care can look like lots of different things, certainly a fostering environment or a, a local adoption experience. That's hard. Honestly, there's a lot of places with high um, burden of orphans, which just don't do that culturally um, outside of, because, because they tend to have these extended family, um, the, the, their understanding of family is much broader maybe mm-hmm. than the North Americans. And so even at the tribal level, sometimes people locally often feel a sense of responsibility to care for kids in that extended family. And so we want to walk with that, into that, encourage that, and strengthen that. So two big trends, deinstitutionalize and emphasize um, home-based care. Working against us, and part of the reason that I'm joining this podcast is to raise awareness around this, Mm -hmm. is that as long as there are donor dollars for orphan care models that are institutional, that system will persist. Even when locally they know that it's maybe not the best, um, a system is already self-protected. And so it won't redirect until we get donor dollars moving toward the healthier models Mm -hmm. of care. Yeah. So before we dive into a follow-up question from that, I'm curious from a more like boots on the ground type experience, Emily, you've, you've had some experience going to different countries where you see children at risk being taken care of some of those with Uncharted, mm-hmm. I think some of those um, outside of the organization of Uncharted. What, how would you answer the question more from the perspective or the looking through the lens of someone who's participated on a short-term trip? How would you answer that question of what does it look like? Like, how would you paint the picture of, of what caring for at-risk children looks like today, really through the lens of of like the short-termer experience, mm-hmm. what has that looked like? I think from somebody who who is a participant in a, in a short-term trip, caring caring for orphans is kind of distilled down to you know making sure immediate physical needs are cared for, and also just I have a responsibility to to show love toward them in mm-hmm. some way. And that that kind of looks different for everybody who who would participate in something like this. Mm-hmm. Whether it's I want to put on some sort of camp experience for these kids, or I just want to hug them and hold mm-hmm. them. And, th- and those are kind of the two things that I think somebody from from a short-term trip perspective or just a, a more removed um, mm-hmm. stance from this whole thing is, okay, well, these kids are living in poverty. So I need to make sure that kind of like what you're saying with the institution, I just want to make sure that they're not going to die at mm-hmm. some point. Yeah. Um, and also these kids lack some sort of family love environment. And so it's going to be up to me to, you know, check that off the list for the the six days I'm going to be over here. <laughs> I'm going to make sure that like all of the love um, that they need to feel, I'm going to like make sure I get, I can take care of that, kind of check that off the list. Yeah. So it's interesting, like getting the, the two different lenses of what it looks like today in terms of doing work for children at risk. You know, there's that higher level organizational uh, 
level that you were speaking at, Scott, of, okay, here are some certain realities that, that need to be questioned, that needs to be challenged. Um, but then also what are the, what are the methods and the models that should and could replace that, that work? And then, you know, what Emily's articulating, just that perspective and that experience of the individual, especially those of us from the West who have engaged in this journey, who have participated in a variety of ways, whether it's donorship or participation on a short-term trip, um, how, how they would, how we would paint that, uh, the picture of where we stand today. Um, so just kind of interesting, the different, you know, the different pictures Mm -hmm. that that paint and yet also how they overlap. Yeah. So as we kind of move into talking about better practices or some ultimate goals that we'd have, I kind of just want to talk about the term orphan really quickly as we move on, just because it in churches, especially in ministry environments, orphan just kind of becomes a shorthand for like any child that needs help whatsoever. Um, and I know uh, I've heard you say, you know, the term child, children at risk or something. Um, can you talk about maybe the preferred terms for children in these kinds of institutions? Yeah, well, so um, it does matter. It matters what language we use. Um, the language can have a labeling effect. It can become, um, you know, kind of a, a useful thing for us, but not healthy to a richer understanding of what's really going on here. So let's start with a lot of kids around the world that are labeled as orphans and living in institutional models of care are actually not biological orphans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So right away, you have a problem of what kids are we talking about? Mm-hmm. Then you have kids who are um, biological orphans, double orphans, mom and dad have both passed away, but they're living with grandma or they're living with an auntie. And that is a very stable, loving environment where they are experiencing all of the types of provisions and developmental opportunities that kids need to thrive. So clearly that child's risk is nowhere near as high as say a child who's not orphaned, but mm-hmm. whose father is abusive or addicted or you know, all of that kind of thing. And so really the issue is not the status of orphanhood. Um, The issue is risk. Mm -hmm. And there are lots of factors that create risk. So the best language um, could be children at risk. Um, The problem with that language is immediately. So well, aren't all kids at risk? And yes, all kids are at risk in some way because they are inherently dependent and vulnerable. That's how Mm -hmm. God gave us little babies that are entirely vulnerable and dependent on us. And as long as the world is um, broken as it is, there's some risk for kids in this world. So it's more like children at extreme risk. And that led to the language of highly vulnerable children. Um, There used to be a term OVC for orphans and vulnerable children. Um, I'm not sure this has become standard, but HVC or highly vulnerable children is a way of saying, this is what we mean. I mean, kids Mm -hmm. whose, whose well-being is threatened by a significant exposure of either physical risk, meaning they could be hungry, they could be without shelter in the streets, those kinds of things, or psychological or social risk. And that comes from these other dynamics. So it's it's almost the counterpart of what we say, what we talk about when we talk about thriving. Mm-hmm. What does it mean for a child to thrive or to flourish? And when we look at a person, we see the whole person, we know that's physical, but that's also cognitive or, or, or uh, you know, educational learning, that space of the mind. Um, it's also socio-emotional. Social is how I relate to others. Emotional, how I see myself and the interdependency of those. And then everything in its context is spiritual. So when we talk about holistic well-being, um, we're talking about kids that are thriving 
yes, physically, they're healthy, they're nourished, they have hygiene and those kinds of things, but also they have opportunities to learn. So good schooling and um, tutoring and support in their education and also healthy relationships where they know they're loved and they can express love. They learn their roles, they have a sense of belonging, their identity is formed within their family or their tribe, those things. And then of course, from our point of view as believers, that all of that is um, brought to life in the context of knowing God as our loving heavenly father and understanding that my relationship with God is the foundation from which all of these um, other aspects of well-being, that John 10, 10 abundant life that Jesus wants for us can be experienced. And so on the one side, you see, well, there's this ideal picture of flourishing and whole life. It's comprehensive to what a human is, physical, cognitive, all of that. And the risk side is what are all those threats that become serious enough that you'd say that's a high vulnerability and we need to now do something special for that child. So in in thinking in terms of um, institutionalization is not ideal, what is maybe the um, the thing that balances that if you know, maybe the opposite, if we're not working towards institutionalization, uh, what would you say we are working towards? We are working toward home-based care that children will feel a sense of belonging within a family unit as they understand family. And that in the context of those loving relationships, yes, their physical needs are met. Um, Now, I mean, for example, I remember um, some of our efforts to do, we called them cottages, uh, the max was 12 kids. The caregiver was not a biological parent, but, and they were compensated, but we were trying to secure long-term, you know, like you're the mom and do the kids begin to identify this caregivers? No, this is mom. And we definitely saw that happen, but because donor dollars were there and you could build a nicer home or you could have a flush toilet in there. When we ask around the community, how does the community see these kids? And I remember one woman saying, well, those children sure dress colorfully. Mm-hmm. And it was her way of saying, where well, they almost seem privileged because of their orphan status, they dress colorfully, they have a flush toilet, nobody else in this neighborhood has a flush toilet inside their house. So there's these things that can change that, um, that, that uh, create a separation. And that same thing, even though those are all good things, I mean, who doesn't want to have um, that higher quality standard of living, but there's, there's a couple of challenges there. One, integration with the community. Um, people don't think today about 10 years from now, but when that seven-year-old is 17 and you're thinking, how does that kid now enter into society? Where are the expectations and how do they fit in? Um, Anything you do that kind of pulls them out of the norms of that community becomes a reintegration problem. Mm -hmm. Um, The second thing is anything you do, especially economically, that the caregiver is experiencing benefit runs the risk of well, at least mixed motives for being in the role. And so it's really important that the caregiver's true motive is a deep love for those kids and that he and she, hopefully you even have a couple, but it's often just a woman, um, they would do it without being paid or supported if they could. They just happen to also be living on the edge of poverty. And so you have to offset those costs in some way. Mm-hmm. So uh, we are working toward home-based care. That's the answer. It's plain and simple. How to get that is very hard depending on the place you are. So I would say even upstream where we should be working is how do we reduce the number of kids that are placed into this need yeah. 
for placement uh, yeah. and, and say, stabilize children wherever they are, the home they are living in. How do you strengthen that family unit? Is it income generation opportunities? Is it, you know, even the, how do you maybe equip a local, a local church to come alongside of families who are supporting a lot of kids and, and on the brink of extreme poverty and dealing with all that? So strengthen the existing care setting is strategy number one, where you have already seen a kid slip out of a, 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 an acceptable care model, then it's placement in home, home-based care. So one question that um, comes up in my mind as you're saying all of this is how do you either through your own personal experience at, at one child or just at a macro level from your perspective, how do you begin to move, say, uh, donors or ministry leaders, both here in the States and overseas? How do you begin to move them, us, from a mindset that is more immediately relief oriented Kind of what Emily was saying earlier, like, okay, how do I like here's the need right in front of my face. I'm I'm gonna address it by giving five dollars to this kid right now, type of thing, to a, a much more long-term sort of holistic, proactive um restoration type model. What what have you what have you experienced? What have you tried? Uh either that's worked or hasn't worked that has helped teach you and in and one child as an organization how to shift from that more immediate relief to the long-term, long-term development mindset. Yeah. So again, there's a role for relief and there's obviously a role for development. Development's better. It's like prevention and cure, right? You'd yeah. rather prevent than, than have to cure or treat. Um, but uh, the answer I would say is um, part of what we're doing right now, right? Um, get on mm-hmm. a podcast and share the word, let people listen into this. It's, it's education. Mm-hmm. Um, so opening eyes and causing people just to ask questions maybe they weren't asking before. So yeah, reaching out to um, supporter communities and, and potentially donors to just educate. Um, that's one part. The second part actually is a little bit more of reform within um, the nonprofit sector, I guess. The, the organizations that are involved in this space, how they market their cause matters. And the language they use as they present, um, you know, save an orphan from the streets. Well, if that's literally what's going on, then that's what you should say. But very often the case um, that those uh, messages are amped up a bit to appeal and to motivate donors to give, and they lose um, authenticity. Uh, so, uh, yeah. And on you know, in my personal journey, I think the integrity of um, of how we represent the cause we serve it should never be a problem because what we're doing is extremely important and compelling. And people have an authentic heart to care for kids at risk and people, um, and there really are orphans and orphanhood really is a source of risk for a lot of kids. So how do we present that opportunity, but not sort of make it a bit of an illusion, I guess. Um, so I guess the answer to your question is, is we just keep communicating and keep Mm -hmm. sharing honestly, here's the real need and here are the real stories of success. And then also here's something we do at one child that I, I just love, um, we lift up what we call the child champion. The child champion is the person who builds a trusting relationship with those kids and has, um, has an ongoing local um, relationship through which all of those other things that we want to see the kid experience, that's happening in the context of that loving relationship. Mm-hmm. So child protection, um, uh, encouragement in school and support for school, 
um, dealing with trauma, the counseling and the processing that has to happen for kids who've gone through a lot of trauma. Child champions are there like social workers. Um, getting kids on a sports team, a coach that can be a child champion. It's socio-emotional development. Just being there to hug a kid when he's crying. All of those things, that's a person, yeah. right? And one of the things that we miss sometimes, um, I mean, one child's doing a great job not missing this, but is that's where the center of the story is. Yeah. It's the frontline teacher, tutor, coach, mentor, youth mm-hmm. pastor, the person who actually is living in the community with the kid knows the kid by name, knows what's going on in the, in the home and can speak into that child's life and is a person so trusted by the kid that if there were abuse going on at home, if there was something really a difficult personal mm-hmm. struggle, the child would feel safe enough to share it mm-hmm. with that individual. Yeah. So we see the child champion. I've been in this 20 years of trying to figure out how to help kids thrive, dealing with all the complex problems they have. And I have come away realizing, and this is coming from a medical background, right? <laughs> I went into it thinking, you know, very medical stuff because there's real medical needs, but I I'm now at the point of recognizing it's the child champion. Mm. That's the key to it all. Make sure that there's a loving, trustworthy adult who's encouraged and equipped to care for that kid. And hopefully enough that they can also mobilize the family um, and and get the family to provide the support they should. That's good. A couple of things you said there that stood out to me is I mean, certainly that last point, that's, that's definitely a shared value with us here at Uncharted in, in all the types of ministries that we do, whether they focus on at-risk children or other types of ministry is, is uh, and I mean this in a healthy way, but really um, allowing, allowing the, the national on the ground to be the hero in a sense of the story um, yeah. and positioning them um, as a person who can really be the the advocate in in your language, the champion of of whatever sort of kingdom causes is, is being put into place. So I love that that's part of the answer. And I I also think it's important to recognize that second point that you were talking about in terms of language. That language really does matter. And and even just in my own personal experience as the leader of a nonprofit who is doing some of this type of work, there to be willing to admit like there can be some fear. When you're talking to donors, especially or key stakeholders, that you know, what if what if the language that I use that more accurately portrays a healthier approach to what we're trying to do? What if that language isn't as appealing or glamorous? What if it doesn't solicit the high dollar amount that we need in order to keep the ministry or the programs going? And so it is tempting to to find the easier language, to find the more compelling dare I even say the more sexy language that, you know, will tug at people's heartstrings. And I love what you said of like, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be afraid. I mean, what we're doing is worth it. And it's been really cool in our journey here at Uncharted that while there have been people who have moved on, like as we, as we have been more honest and true to our mission and the language that reflects that, there have been people who have moved on in really healthy ways and and we bless them and bless, you know, what the passion that God has put on their hearts. But at the same time, there have been new people who have joined in who, as they hear this, this clarifying language of this is what it looks like for us as we help children at risk, or this is what it looks like for us as we try to accomplish X, Y, or Z. There are other people out there who say, yes, like that's what I want to be part of. And so I love that as you were talking about that re-education, just that important part of, 
as ministry leaders and, and implementers to not be afraid of just being true and articulating uh, the truth of this is what we're about. And it's okay. Um, it's okay if, if X, Y, or Z person is not, because there will be others who are. Um, so I, I yeah. appreciate that you highlighted yeah. that. Yeah, building your um, organizational identity and reputation around the authentic truth of who you are and what you believe is really important. Yeah. And when your mindset is kingdom and mission first, organization is a vehicle to get that kingdom purpose achieved, then you're, you're going to express those values and you will attract um, like-minded yep. community, yep. right? The people that come alongside you they won't hold you to a different expectation because you didn't promise A and deliver B. Mm -hmm. You promised A, you deliver A, you're trying to um, you know, keep that integrity throughout everything. You will be stronger and healthier for sure in the long run compared to the other scenario, which is organization kind of is mission. Organization kind of became kingdom somehow. And now I got to grow this organization. So what do I need to say? Mm -hmm. And then you take dollars from sources that you shouldn't be taking. You, you, you appeal in ways that you shouldn't be saying that and everything is upside down in that mm -hmm. situation. So, um, and you know, I know that every organization, well, most organizations, a lot of leaders step into existing organizations, right? Some people have the privilege of building from the ground up and they can kind of have that strength from the foundation. A lot of others step into environments where you have to lead change. Yeah. You may have inherited an organizational culture, or you may have inherited um, a language or expectations set by a predecessor. And then you're tasked with, all right, how do we bring this to full health and create transparency, integrity, accountability, and those things? And it takes courageous leadership to do that. So whenever a leader is clear what that mission is and understands the organization is a vehicle to that mission and that you would never compromise values like integrity or transparency, uh, then you're eventually going to come out, uh, lean and mean like that 300, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, that's good. You've got the crew you need. You, you, you can trust God with the rest. So I want to move into talking maybe a little bit about some, some mistakes that get made, um, or addressing some concerns that people have. Whenever I was like a, a teenager and a young adult, the social justice movement was very like prominent and trendy in Christian circles. And so I think a lot of people a lot of people I know who are my peers, you know, take it very seriously in terms of, mm -hmm. of faith and in a lot of ways use that as a reason not to engage in missions because they see they see these concerns with mm -hmm. working with vulnerable children and they see all the ways it can go wrong. And so they say, well, you can't possibly do it right. So I'm just going to not engage at all. Mm -hmm. And I think it doesn't help that over and over again, we see examples and stories of people who in the church and in missions and in working with children maybe have good intentions and then, you know, colossal mistakes and harm follows from that. This was actually, I was just reading this today is a story I'd forgotten about, but there was a young woman who started a uh, nutrition organization in Uganda several years ago, about 10 or 11 years ago, um, and completely unqualified in terms of ministering medical care, um, took in, I think, nearly a thousand children who are suffering from malnutrition, mm. you know, roughly 10% of them died under her care mm. and she fled the country and is, has been under investigation and there's ongoing mm. cases against her. And I think a lot of people see stuff like that and assume any sort of international organization, any sort of thing where like we're sending help there, yeah. um, is just, is just gets written off. 
So Scott, I'm wondering with your experience um, in your in the community that one child is in, have you seen, you know, that is a, a bit of an extreme example, but have you seen um, things or experienced where, you know, good ideas and good intentions have maybe had just unintended consequences in the communities? Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, man, you know, um, every organization and every effort has those stories and has mistakes or or unexpected, like we tried to foresee these scenarios, but then this happened and that's just not what we saw coming. And then of course, every organization also has uh, people. (laughs) (laughs) If if people would just be perfect, you know? Um, So yeah, human motivations and honestly sin or pride or or whatever else, um, it will show up uh, at any level of any organization. Um, So so the question becomes, how do you design in such a way that you mitigate those risks, that you're continuously learning to improve, to avoid maybe mistakes of the past, that you face the brutal facts, right? Don't bury stuff. It's just what you said earlier about the courage to have hard conversations. And, um, and in all of that, honor what you've been called to do, I guess, is one way of putting it. So um, so there does need to be organizational maturity around things like audit. Hmm. I mean, that's a non, uh, you know, not too many people are interested in the term audit. It doesn't, doesn't do a lot for raising dollars, but you know what? A validation process where you can, in a very simple, not, um, not punitive or policing kind of way, enter into that programmatic space where your dollars or your donors' dollars are landing and then um, return for you some sense of confidence. Things are healthy. What we said is what's happening. And there's, it's legal. There's proper accountability and so on. Um, transparency does that. Transparency is accountability. So wherever you can create visibility, and I know that's harder in the hard places, as you guys know, but that visibility is very healthy. So, um, you know, when I think about a story of where it didn't work so well, this is a small story, but it embodies a lot. Mm-hmm. I mentioned earlier that we, we were trying to build programs of home-based care, and we were placing kids at risk into families who said and who'd been vetted locally to, to really care for that particular child. Well, uh, follow-up work, we recognized that one of those girls was in a home where when when we were able, and this is the hard part, to have very sensitive, trusting conversations requires relationships. So you have to have a local facilitator being that bridge that, that can communicate well with the kids themselves. One child has a whole tool called Voice of Youth. It's a listening process. So it's a systematic, structured way of listening to every single kid in our program. So we have 350 local partnerships in 14 countries. How do you listen to 40,000 kids? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the answer is, oh, by the way, you can. You can. And so uh, having child champions equipped in ways to ask intentional questions and capture what they're hearing into um, tools that do let us analyze and then sort of point back, okay, here's, here's some stuff we're seeing or learning. Most of the learning is local, it's story-based, it's narrative, qualitative stuff. But you can um, capture out of those conversations really helpful things so that kids have influence and voice into the we call it a program, but to the experience that they're a part of. So to get back to the story, this, this girl, um, 
in a, in a nutshell, she described feeling like a second-class citizen in the family, like she wasn't really one of their kids and why she was always made to do the dishes and she always had to water the goats and she always had to do uh, the clothing, you know, cleaning and none of the other kids had to do these things. And the more you learned about it, the, the more you started to realize, the more I realized in that conversation, we took a child who had already gone through the trauma of losing her only caregiver. Her mom had passed away from HIV AIDS. We knew that she had psychological um, trauma and we knew that she was stigmatized socially. If you were in a family that had been cursed, you were cursed. And she had been at school where they learned little songs, AIDS is death, AIDS kills, and they had to chant this as an AIDS prevention program. And so there's so, so much hardship that she had to deal with. And the family that took her in did so to essentially use her as a domestic servant. Mm. And furthermore, because we were trying to help offset the cost side of that decision, we were providing, um, it's like five pounds of beans a week or something. It was some commodity, mm-hmm. not a lot, but it was a meaningful subsidy that was economic and had value. And, you know, I'd love to say we walked away and here's how we learned, here's how we fixed it. I don't know what you can do sometimes. Yeah. You, you do your best to try to understand human motivation. And, and here's a family who says, we'll take her in. And you look them in the eyes and they they look like good people who are just going to care for this kid. And you're like, okay, here's the deal. We'll help with the cost of food. And here's how we'll do that. And here's the church right here. And the church mm-hmm. is going to be stopping by and trying to help you out. And she's got some struggles. So we're going to keep an eye on her. Okay. Okay. Six months later, that's the experience the girl mm-hmm. is having. And uh, there's just times when things are too hard Yeah. and you do your best and uh, you want to, you want to, feel like you fixed every problem and, and responded to every mistake, but sometimes all you can do is your best. Yeah. Well, among other things, I really appreciate the honesty in that response and in that story. Cause I'm, I, I feel the same thing about a lot of the work that we do as well. It's just, sometimes you're just left with this sense of, this is really hard. This <laughs> is really complex and there are not always solutions. Um, or the solutions that you that you try with such good intent and thoughtfulness and humility just don't work. And and yeah. it's very, it's very difficult. And and so, you know, and then it and it's just period. Like there, there's no sometimes there's no like, <laughs> but then <laughs> some Yeah, happy ending, Hollywood yeah. movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, uh, so I do appreciate that honesty. And you did well, sort of hurts. You, yeah, it does. Hurts I mean, it you 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 long so much just at a human level, but certainly, you know, in a way that flows from the father's heart, you yearn so much to see the improvement and the betterment. And the, you use this word earlier, the flourishing of a person's life. Um, and to, to feel stuck and powerless in trying to help move towards that. Uh, it does hurt. Yeah. It's, it's very difficult. And, and that's one of the reasons why this sort of work is not for the faint of heart. Um, yeah. and, and also just a great, powerful reminder that we're not the saviors, you know? Mm. I mean, we, we've mentioned this a couple of times on a couple other podcasts. One of our, one of our other podcast interviewees, Carlo Serrano, a friend of ours, um, saying that, you know, our job is to steward, not to save. And, and so just remembering like, yeah. man, Okay. I'm going to steward this as best as I can through the, through the wisdom and the power the spirit gives to me, but it's not my job. To yeah. Save. And that's it. The best we can. And 
And there's a lot we can't, I mean, definitely agree. We're not the saviors, 100%. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty sure about that one. But we <laughs> also do the best we can. That's right. So, yeah. I want to come back to something that you shared earlier, which was really a question, um, not so much a question, but a posture or position that the critic can take. Because mm-hmm. you were mentioning that people have heard about these negative things and they kind of take from that. So don't get involved mm. or don't trust that or that's a scam, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a reductionist. Okay. I've heard criticism and now I'm going to camp out right over here on this, this hill. Uh, and I would say this, two things. What's the difference between cynicism and criticism? Because mm. I think criticism is great. I think to offer a critique, to question, to point to the challenges and problems, that is a good and healthy thing. And we embrace that. Cynicism, on the other hand, is different. It looks the same, but at its heart, it doesn't desire the solution. Mm. It desires just to criticize. It doesn't even believe that there is a better way. It's not motivated by solving or by you know, getting through the problem. It seems to be self-fulfilled and I am smart because I can criticize mm-hmm. and it's detached. It's detached because that person's heart is not broken. Mm. All right. So bring on the, the, the critics, mm-hmm. fill your organizations with the people who are going to think um, realistically and address the hard realities and criticize the things, hopefully in a healthy, constructive way, <laughs> you know, but keep the cynics in a hole somewhere. They have no place because their heart is is to sit and criticize. And so we focus at One Child on being solution-minded, all right? Solution-mindedness is actually one of our core values. On a foundation of integrity and humility in Christ's character, we look for people who are solution-minded. We're going to find the problem, but you better come with ideas on how to fix it. Because of that is the essence of the redemptive work of God, mm-hmm. uh, the work of reconciliation, the work of restoration, the work of healing, it, it all addresses, yes, there's brokenness. Yes, there's pain. And we're not the saviors, but we're part of that work that he's doing through us to bring solutions, to bring healing, to be part of the work of restoration. And so uh, we, we cherish um, both the willingness to say the hard things and the solution mindedness to say, well, what about this? So when I encounter somebody who kind of comes off snarky and they're criticizing and they're offering those, well, look at all these problems. I, I like to just say, Hey, tell me just what is it that breaks your heart? Hmm. How do you feel about um, these realities? And then tell them a few things about the kids that I've seen. And honestly, you can tell pretty quick when they kind of pull back and, you know, they're gone cold, they want to walk away and that's fine. Yeah. That's where they're at. Yeah. You can tell somebody who's like, yeah, you're right. I don't know. We've Well, then we, we don't quit, do we? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's problems and mistakes. We've got to fix them, right? It's really good. That's a, that's a really powerful and necessary distinction. I like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so on that note, there's our, our time is, is quickly approaching the end, but we, we do have a few more minutes, and there's a couple more questions we, we'd like to ask. I think one of them already you've – done really well at answering and responding to, but maybe we can just ask a little bit more poignantly and um, hear your response to that. So just in these last few minutes, a um, couple more questions. Um, first would be if someone were to come up to you and sort of out of the blue say, 
So how do we do this well then? Now, again, you, you've already answered this in a way. Um, but it, but if I'm, if I'm the critic, not the cynic, if I'm the <laughs> critic and I'm, I'm looking for the solution, I want to be part of this solution. How do, how do we do this? Well, um, I'll let, I'll let you answer that first, but just so you know, um, I think the question we'd actually like to end on is if I'm a, if I'm an individual donor who's involved in actively involved in some sort of ministry or program that's helping children at risk, um, or I'm a church that is involved in this. Cause we, we do have, you know, some, some of our podcast listeners are individuals who engage in global mission work. Some of them are, they represent church partners. Um, what advice would you give either to the individual donor or to the church who's actively involved? So I know those are two different questions that may have some corollary answer. And certainly Emily, if you have other ways you'd like to phrase any of those questions, but um, maybe let's start with that first one. Um, so what, how do we do this? Well, so uh, great question. And when we talk about doing it well, we're talking about seeing kids thrive and, uh, and flourish, right? Holistic uh, health, if you will, or being mm-hmm. well physically, socially, spiritually, educationally. And I think number one, we have to recognize um, that that's a long-term uh, process. It can't be done in a single event. It's not a single project. It's not send them to camp. Those, those can be good things, but you actually need at the core are long-term stable, loving relationships for those kids. Mm-hmm. So really the first goal is in the home environment, whatever quote unquote family means, how do we strengthen and stabilize that setting of caregivers? And then second, right alongside of that is the role of this person we call the child champion. There has to be someone that's locally present, a coach, a teacher, someone, a youth pastor, someone who knows that child. And the question for us then on the supporter, you know, maybe we're an organization or we're a donor, somehow we want to enter into that and do it well. We have to find um, those people who are trustworthy local leaders and strengthen their capacity to, to do what God's already put on their heart to do, to love those kids. So we can train them in child protection. We can make sure those kids feel known. We can make sure they have safe places to play. We can make sure uh, that there's opportunities for economic stability. Um, a lot of different designs that you could choose. All of those should be enculturated. That is localized. That is really owned, initiated. And, and there has to be equity from that local partner or local community. But it is um, at the end, it's recognizing those kids belong to that family or that community. They are their children, not ours. Mm-hmm. And they need long-term, stable, loving relationships. And that um, for the kid to thrive, um, we can strengthen those local capacities so that they stay stable. And, um, you know, even catching emergency needs, you know, sometimes things are okay, but trauma hits and they don't have insurance, mm-hmm. right? A death in the family, a funeral costs a thousand dollars. There goes everything. And now the kid's made to go work because the family needs income and he can't be in school. He's got to go earn some money for the family. Mm-hmm. So um, things you can do to ensure against shocks. Uh, and that does point in our case to the local church. One child believes that um, the gathering of believers in a local community, the ecclesia, that local church empowered by the Holy Spirit is the design that Jesus launched. It's his his uh, strategy, if you will, mm-hmm. for uh, advancing the kingdom. And so at one child, we look for how do we strengthen local churches 
so that those churches are able to respond to the kids at risk um, and bring them inside the ministries of the church and the families that are in the church in ways that help those kids thrive. That's awesome. So if somebody, you know, has a heart for helping vulnerable children, are there some sort of markers of good organizations that uh, a person can recognize? Like, what what should I be looking for if I'm somebody who wants to support like healthy, sustainable aid for for vulnerable children? Yeah, so it's a tough question because there's so many. Well, there are, there are differences in how organizations approach the problem, right? Mm. So there are some organizations whose sort of philosophy or um, frame of reference is um, at the systems level. And so they would want to put their money into changing the systems. And that might be political advocacy. That might be championing education and getting more of that local or that, that national government's investment in education. Things that are good for kids as a population. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just a different question from an organization that says, no, we're here for Jose, right? Or, mm-hmm. or you know, this little yeah. girl here. When you focus individually, as um, there are, even among organizations that do child sponsorship, there's massive differences between, say, Save the Children, Food for the Hungry, World Vision, Compassion, and One Child. Even though we look like, oh, we all do sponsorship, how that is um, operationalized and what the programmatic experience is, is very different across those organizations. So if you're asking, um, hey, I want to support, I want to be involved, and I'm looking at a program that's helping specific kids, then I would say your markers are, number one, what is the specific and meaningful benefit that that child is supposed to receive? There should be transparency and accountability. If someone is offering to support Jose, what's Jose getting out mm-hmm. of the deal, right? It does matter that you're not just using Jose's picture to raise money and sending the money to do stuff that may be good stuff, but it's not benefiting Jose. In, mm-hmm. our, in our view at One Child, um, if a child is presented for support, the child needs to specifically receive meaningful uh, uh, support that corresponds to that level of giving. Second thing you should look for is that accountability that is not just the transparency side, but I mentioned earlier, audit. What is the process by which you review those local programs? Um, how, how does that uh, ensure that there's um, not a conflict of interest or sort of um, well, risk of scandal, to be blunt, uh, at the local level. And then um, third, all the principles of transformational development, which um, you know you want to look for, is there local ownership? Is there local initiative? Is there local equity? Is there skin in the game from the local partner, if you will? And ask the organization, what's the process by which this um, activity was created? Is it kind of a franchise model where there's a big organization that has a bunch of money and says, here's your, you know, your deal, do it this way and we'll give you money? Or is it a model that really says through participation, through an intercultural conversational uh, dynamic, we enter alongside that local community's vision, we help them clarify their approach, we try to remove barriers and, and um, strengthen capacity so that there's sustainability at the end. So I would look for, um, again, depending on which type of organization you're supporting here, the ones that are um, claiming to bring meaningful benefit to individual kids, I would say, okay, what is that? Let's be transparent about it. I would say, how do you know about the operational um, integrity, you know, the kind of reviewing what's really being delivered? And then what is your 
transformational process? How did the people participate in every stage of this design from vision to evaluation? So I think in that, uh, in that answer, we've heard some of what I'm about to ask. This, I, this is one more question that's not on the script. Oh, Sorry, no. I'm adding this at the last second here. But <laughs> worked so hard I know, on that I outline. Know, I know we're, we're almost out of time, but I do want to, um, you know, I think we just heard a lot about the heart of not only your heart personally and a lot of your personal philosophy, but also the heart and the philosophy and strategy of one child. Um, but as we wrap up here, Scott, like give us, give us sort of that, you know, that great sort of elevator speech, one child as an organization, again, love your tagline, hope in hard places. Why that tagline? Um, give us, give us that 60,000 foot view of, of one child. Uh, I'd love for our listeners to, to hear that from you. Well, uh, thanks, Ben. Uh, really appreciate it. At the time talking and, and just being on mission together, uh, learning from each other and encouraging each other as we enter into those hard places. Um, grateful for that. So um, obviously one child, we're all about kids. So we, we love kids and want to see them thrive, have a happy uh, childhood, safe places to play, protect them, give them opportunities. When we think about um, kids and generational change, that's not just because of God's love for kids and our love for kids. It's also strategic. Um, most of the major social issues that we face aren't going to be dealt with in a few years. It's going to take generational change. And I mean, almost every big issue that we face across any society in the world. So we need to invest generationally and have that long-term view of transformation. And so helping kids thrive, have a loving childhood experience, these things so that they grow to be the solutions of, to the problems we face. They're not the problem. They're the solution waiting to grow up, right? Mm. In that, this word hope is actually super important to us. I know it's a common word, but um, one of the deepest, darkest, and most challenging things that people face anywhere, not just in low-income environments, but anywhere, is despair. Mm. It's the belief that there's not a way out that this is all there is, that they may as well give up now. And when you're a kid growing up in those hard places, um, you know, you don't show up in the world with that. Mm -hmm. You show up curious and asking questions and trusting people and smiling. And it actually, um, that sparkle lasts in those kids' eyes till about age seven, eight, nine. And then the brutality of the world and the repeated messages of the world around them, you don't matter, give up, it isn't gonna get any better you're a victim of these circumstances and they begin to believe it. They believe that lie that they're, that they don't have a better future. And that is why we have to be in the hope construction business. We have to help those kids believe that is a lie and that there is a better future and that God loves them and has a plan for their life. And that they're chock full of possibilities that they have ideas that matter, that they have, that they're smart, that, that they can, that they're talented, that they can contribute. Mm -hmm. And um, that they don't have to follow the patterns of brokenness that, that, that have been example, examples around them. The models that, that are all around them are, are showing them things that are just, they don't need to be their story. Yeah. So we believe in hope. And we say hard places. It's yes, it's physically hard or politically or, you know, all those kinds of hard realities. But it's also the hard place of despair. Mm -hmm. And we want to enter into the hard place of despair and bring hope. That's our tagline. And that's what we do when we do that in partnership with local churches. Um, it really is specifically important to say, because of what we believe about God and what Jesus did and, and the movement he launched in the church, our question is how do we strengthen local churches to do what God has called them to do? And we've identified 
five key things we believe every church in every economic setting around the world needs to have with regards to how they see kids. Number one, they need to have leaders who are committed to the children, to who see kids as God sees them, that they aren't just something you marginalize and push over in the corner and set up a Sunday school or something. No, they are vitally important in the life of the church today. They are not objects of mission. They are agents of mission. Read your scripture and look at the role of kids in that. So leaders who get it, leaders who are committed to children and youth. Second, if they're a leader who believes in the importance of that, they're going to mobilize child champions. So the youth pastor, teachers, coaches, mentors, people who engage in the lives of those kids are going to be mobilized and equipped and supported instead of burned out, overlooked, you know, like, hey, we need somebody to volunteer for this kids thing. Anybody will do. Give me somebody with a pulse, right? No. <laughs> We're committed to this. This is central to who we are as a church. So out of that leadership commitment, you mobilize, support, encourage the people who work with kids. That's the child champions. The third thing those churches have to do is engage families well. Mm. And that is super hard, especially in environments where it's predominantly Hindu or predominantly, you know, whatever. It's it's a role of the church to figure out how that's an addicted, that's an abusive situation. That's a, well, that's a hard space. That's how do you do that? Mm -hmm. And honestly, I wish we were a lot better at it. At One Child, we're still learning how to equip local churches for effective family engagement so that kids thrive. Mm -hmm. The fourth thing is child participation. That's not just children show up. That is children have influence. They have voice. Why is that so important? Well, one, for the God-given dignity. Mm -hmm. uh, two, because what you're trying to develop in them is a sense of agency, efficacy, the ability that, that something that says to them, hey, you matter, your thoughts and feelings matter, so speak up. What do you, what do you see here? What are you learning? What do you think should be different? And the more you're inviting kids to have that voice and participate in an honest way, not a tokenism, but an honest voice of contribution, sharing their experience, letting that experience inform how activities are done. You're developing the kid and getting a better program out of it. All that needs a plan. So that's the five signs of the generational church. We want every church on the planet to be committed to those five things. Leaders who see kids, who mobilize child champions, who engage families well, who listen to kids and let them be influential and have a plan for all of that. It's beautiful. Well, this is uh, this has been really helpful, and I do hope for people that are listening to this, um, whether it's just individuals who care about this particular field of, of mission and ministry or uh, church leaders uh, that are exploring how to do this even better as a, as a church themselves. Uh, I know that this has been very helpful. It's super easy for me right now too to also advocate on your guys' behalf. If if a person who's listening has been on the fence about engaging with child sponsorship, man, I, I'd say I, uh, this conversation should tip you over in the right direction. And one child is the organization that uh, that they should jump on with. And uh, just really thankful for you, Scott. So, um, real quick, a couple practical things. You guys are on Instagram. Um, so if listeners want to follow you guys, it's just one child uh, is where they would find you. Your handle there, uh, your website, I believe, is it just onechild.org? Is that right? Yeah, we're, we're onechild.org. And some of our handles are One Child Matters. Uh, so either of those should find us. Okay, awesome. So just yeah, encourage yeah. listeners to get involved with these guys, uh, get engaged, following, going on their website. Um, and if the Lord leads you to even join in on helping sponsor some of these children. Um but Scott, this truly has been an awesome time, and I've I've learned a lot. Um, I can speak for our team, uh, Emily and Noah, and and those that you've talked to in other settings. That we we learn a lot and take away from from you every time we 
interact with you. So thank you for taking the time to do this. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Ben. It's been great to be with you, Emily. A delight uh, to get some time connecting, talking about these important topics. Really value you guys for your thoughtfulness, for your courage, for the way that you want to, you know, learn from the past, but help us move forward. Help us move forward boldly, courageously, continuously getting better and uh, um, answer those uh, critics, but ignore those cynics. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yeah. <laughs>